And amen. Stay standing as uh, we read God's word together from John chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 1 through 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I uh, really encourage you to grab one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you. Um, or you may use your device, of course. Uh, some people say, open your Bible or turn it on. Um, and so uh, John chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 14 is our text this morning, um, and we'll be in that text. Thank you, Brian, for reading. The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was at the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and, he, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's, dear Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us lost and, and wondering. You have revealed yourself to us in so many ways and primarily through your word. Father, please help us never to neglect time with you in your word. And please bless Nathan as he opens your word for us today. Give us hearts to hear and to believe and to grow mature in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Uh, one theologian says of this passage that its words are worthy to be written in letters of gold. So that's what's before us today. Um, words that are worthy to be written in letters of gold. And so at the outset of his gospel, uh, the, the writer John claims that Jesus Christ is God. That's a, that's a big claim. You know that, right? Uh, you know that not everybody believes that. Uh, we here uh, at Grace Harbor Church believe that. Uh, we affirm what uh, the, the Bible says, and we affirm what the early church affirmed over and over again. Uh, those words that Jesus Christ is God um, and this claim that he is God, most certainly unique to Christianity, they are surely words that are worthy uh, to be written in letters of gold. Yet, as we look at these words today and the beauty of what lies before us in this text, we're, we're challenged with something. And I, want us to, I just want to kind of address something here, uh, that we are faced with the challenge or the danger of what we can call familiarity. Um, and so here we are entering the Christmas season, right? Um, you know the story. Uh, that, that a long time ago, uh, this thing happened in Bethlehem where this baby was born in a manger. 
pretty familiar story to us, right? Um, and so one of the, the dangers that we face is the, is the danger of familiarity. I find over the last couple of years as we have taken time to preach kind of through the Christmas season, I have found um, that preaching a Christmas series is, is really one of the most challenging things uh, for me and for us to kind of prepare for um, and, and to do. And, it's, and it really may be one of the more dangerous things for you who hear. Um, and and uh, because of, as I said, our familiarity with the story, uh, that we know these things, we know the story. Uh, grandma read it to us from the big Bible. Anybody's grandma have one of those uh, way too big Bibles sitting on her nightstand? Yeah, we, we, we got those. Um, and so we've heard the story. We've sat, at, we've sat at grandma's feet. We've heard it all of our lives. And so we have grown familiar uh, with a story that is not intended to grow stale. And we all know, we all know that, that growing familiar with something, um, that, that, that the more familiar one becomes with something, the easier it is to fail to appreciate something, right? The more familiar that we grow with something, uh, the, the more we fail to appreciate it. But if these words in this text are, are uh, not only worthy to be written in letters of gold, but are words that are etched in God's eternal, unchanging, sufficient word, then they are truly words that deserve our full attention. And, and, and let me just say something, that, that, if, that if something grows stale or familiar, that's not a fault on the side of what God has called us to do. Uh, maybe that's communion every Sunday. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most uh, common things that we hear is, isn't communion every Sunday going to kind of grow old? Well, well, let's just take a second and not uh, not, not make a judgment on what God has called us to do in communion, but rather evaluate our own hearts and say, Lord, would you help us? As a friend of mine wrote a prayer, would you make the familiar fresh to us? Would you make the familiar fresh to us? And so it is with the Christmas story, uh, the, the truth that God became man and dwelt among us. That familiar story, we are asking the Lord to help us uh, to, to hear and to receive in a, in a fresh way. And so can, I, can we pray for that before we dive in? We're gonna take the next few weeks and, and repeat a lot of familiar things that you're gonna hear. We hope, those of you who are visiting with us, we hope you come back. Uh, we're really happy that you're here. And we're just gonna kind of share the same old things. No, ain't, nobody saying new, ain't nobody saying anything new up here. Uh, the minute that they do, uh, just, just leave, okay? Nobody's saying new. We're, we're, we're talking about the old things here. The old things are the good things, all right? Um, and so we're gonna ask the Lord to make the familiar fresh to us. Father, um, just as, as we are very aware of, of our own heart's propensity to, um, uh, to, to grow stale, um, to, to grow neutral in some ways to, to things, uh, Lord, we also acknowledge that at times uh, we approach your living word in the same way. Um, and so would you help us in this, in this season um, and beyond this season um, that the things that you have laid out for us um, and, the, and the ways that you have prescribed uh, that we live and that we operate, um, Lord, would you help us to, to see within our own hearts um, the need uh, for, for new mercy every day, and not only the need that we have, but the offer of new mercy every day uh, that you give to us. Um, and so, Lord, as we enter this season, uh, would you make the familiar fresh to us? Uh, would you help us to see your word um, in a, in a, uh, in a re refreshing, clear way um, today? Not because of the staleness of your word, but because of the, the staleness of, of our own hearts and minds. 
And so, Lord, we just uh, lay that before you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're not only asking for, for the Lord to make these words fresh to us, but also one of the ways uh, that, that uh, we may see freshness to this familiar story um, is to see the intense practicality of these words, um, that they're not merely theological, doctrinal, theoretical words, um, but that they actually mean something. And so any of you who are professionals in a field of study um, know that there is the textbook knowledge and then there is the way in which the knowledge is applied. Um, there's the way in which those things are, are carried out from day to day. Well, the truth about this passage is that it is deeply theological, deeply beautiful, uh, something that should lead us to worship. As J.R. Packer says, theology should lead to doxology. Uh, that's just a fancy word for the truths of God should lead us to the worship of God. Um, and so one of the ways that we regain that freshness is by seeing that these words are not just theoretical words or only theological words, but they are intensely practical to our life and how we operate, how we move, how we um, interact with one another. In fact, what these opening words say about Christ, let me just give you a very specific example for us in our context. Um, what, what these opening words say about Christ are relevant to our current context here in Northwest Oklahoma City. Uh, many of you would say, well, of course they're relevant, and you're right. Uh, they, they are relevant. They have intrinsic relevance regardless of our acknowledgement of their relevance, but particularly so in our current evangelistic context, um, that we have many Muslim neighbors um, and many neighbors beyond that who reject the truths that this passage proclaims, that Jesus is not God that maybe he is just some mere prophet or good or wise teacher. But again, our claim this morning and our firm belief is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that Jesus Christ is himself God. And that's, that's our claim. And so we, we, uh, we, we pray for our Muslim neighbors. We pray for those neighbors who, who are unwilling to, to, uh, to open their eyes to this, and, and we, we, we pray for them who cannot comprehend it unless God chooses in his grace to open their eyes to the truth that we so faithfully and obediently, by God's grace, will share with them. And so the claims of the gospel writer here are worthy, church, of full acceptance. Uh, they are worthy of full acceptance, and our Savior is worthy of full adoration. And so, with those introductory words, I want to read verses 1 through 5. And so let's read those together, if you would. John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If this gives you flashbacks to the opening line of Scripture, uh, Genesis 1-1, then that is no accident. Uh, John, uh, the gospel writer, writes this passage and this, um, this information about who Christ is very intentionally, and it is intended to uh, mark the beginning of something. Just the way that Genesis 1-1 marks uh, the beginning of something cosmic. John is saying exactly what you think he is. The incarnation. That's just a fancy word for the enfleshment. Uh, and, and, and so the, uh, the incarnation or the enfleshment or the birth of Jesus Christ was, was a beginning for Jesus is what John says, but it was not the beginning of Jesus. The incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus, but it was a beginning for him. For Jesus had no beginning, is what this text says, but Jesus always was. But just as Jesus 
uh, always was God, as we see in this text, it also says that he was with God. So how does that work? How does that work for our uh, linear analytical minds? Now, how can Jesus both be God and be with God? Well, welcome to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, welcome to the glorious doctrine of the Trinity, that our God is one God, but he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Father, here, here we go, here's your lesson for today. The fa- there's, there's a cool uh, little diagram on this that I don't have up here today, but there's all sorts of ways that people have tried to explain this in the past. Most of the time when I try to explain it, they're uh, committing heresy and all those, and I'm just kidding. Um, there's, there's all sorts of ways to think about this, but, but one just simple way to think about this um, is that the Father is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is not uh, Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is God. The distinction between and the uniqueness of each of these three persons of the Trinity exists throughout all the scriptures as well as affirmations to all of their deity. That the Holy Spirit is God, that Christ is God, that the Father is God. In fact, Christ is, as the text says, the very Word of God. Um, we're going to be kind of in a lot of different passages today, um, mainly in, here in John and then in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, and so Christ is what the text says and what the text in Hebrew says, Christ is the very word of God. The one of whom Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus, uh, God has now spoken to us through his son, that God has spoken to us through his son. Christ is the exact representation of of God, the one whom Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and what? The exact imprint of his nature. Christ is the very creator of all things. Have you ever thought about that? Christ is the creator of all things. In fact, let me just show you some scriptures. The one of whom Psalm 102, Psalm chapter 102 that we read this morning, and Hebrews chapter 1.10 says, this is, this is, the Father speaking about and to the Son in Psalm chapter 102. And Hebrews 1 affirms that for us, that, that it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is God, Jesus Christ, creator God. Christ is Lord over all things. The one of whom Psalm 110 and Hebrews 113 says, sit at my right hand. I pointed my left hand. That's your right, right? You saw saw my right hand. You, Lord, uh, or it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The enemies of God are, as I've heard before, merely a piece of furniture for Jesus to prop himself up on, to kick his foot up on, and to say, I have conquered these enemies. So John is showing that Jesus is not only the center of faith, but that Jesus is the center of all creation. Amen? Jesus is the center of all creation. So here's what's so interesting. Um, out, of, out, of the, out of the four gospels, three of them trace back before Jesus existed. As, as human, as, at least as, as a human. So Matthew, as, as we're in uh, outside of the Christmas season, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus to Abraham and to David. Luke traces um, the, uh, the, the genealogy of Christ to Adam. John traces the, the, the life of Christ too, but not to some physical lineage, but to creation. 
And so that's what's going on in this text. You've got Matthew, Luke, and John all tracing the life of Jesus back to some sort of transcendent reality. And what John's doing, he's not tracing it back through a family line. He's tracing it back to the fact that Jesus' line goes all the way back to the beginning, back to creation. And so Jesus is not only creator of the physical world, he is also light um, and is the creator of salvation. Let's read verses six through eight. I want you to get your eyes on that text if you possibly can. Verses six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Say John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so we're introduced to another character here. We've been introduced to Jesus, to the word, to the very one from the beginning. And we're introduced to another character here, John the Baptist. Now, this is not the John who writes the gospel. Don't get that confused. This is not the John who's writing this gospel, but the elder cousin of Jesus, yet who refers to Jesus as the one who was before me, right? If you notice that later on in this chapter, uh, that, John in, uh, that John the Baptist in verse 30 of chapter one says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And John the Baptist acknowledges there that Christ was before him because Christ goes back to creation. The text tells us uh, that John the Baptist served as a mouthpiece for God. He was merely a voice for God, but Christ was the word of God. So John the Baptist, he's a, he's a voice for God. He's, he's called that many times. John the Baptist refers to himself that way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist was a voice for God, but Christ, as John points to, was the very word of God, Christ himself, the word. Now, there's not anything too unusual about this character, John the Baptist. Um, God spoke through prophets often. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that, that at one time, in many, in many ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But now, in the later times, he has spoken to us through his son. So it's not unusual that John the Baptist is speaking for God, um, on behalf of God, to the people of God. What is unusual and what will be unusual to us is if we fail to see that all of the prophet's most ultimate message was about Christ. That, that as the prophets of the Old Testament shared the word of God with the people of God, that all of the messages that they shared had their ultimate fulfillment and pointed ultimately to the message about Christ. And by the way, Jesus shows us that in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bible, flip one page back at the end of Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 27. We'll read, we'll read 25 through 27 of chapter 24. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so it should not be too inconceivable to believe that if Jesus is the center of all creation, then he is the center of the scriptures, right? That Jesus is, if, if Jesus is the center of creation, what other story is this Bible ultimately going to be sharing other than that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the savior of the world and the Lord over all creation? 
if very creation, if no thing exists apart from Christ, that includes the scriptures that we hold in our hands. And Jesus himself interpreted all that the law and the prophet, Moses and the prophets said in, uh, concerning himself to those people. So at the center of all the prophetic messages in the Old Testament, listen, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because this is, this is massively practical here. At, at the center of all prophetic messages of the Old Testament is not primarily an end-time interpretation. What's going on in the world? Well, let's just go read the, the, the secret codes and go ask somebody about this. No, at the very center of all that the Old Testament predicts and, and the way that we are to interpret is not an end-time interpretation, but a telling of the coming Messiah who would come, who would live, die, be buried, and rise again, establishing thus his reign as Lord over all things. That is what the scriptures tell us. And so Ezekiel's prophecy about the new covenant, Isaiah's prophecy of a coming king and kingdom, and Samuel's prophecy of a coming anointed king fulfilled in the now reigning, not someday, but now reigning Christ, the one who reigns now. Jude 3. Anybody ever read Jude? Like, you know, some, somebody told me you don't have to say Jude 1, 3 because there's one chapter, and so it's just Jude 3. Um, it's not chapter 3, it's verse 3 of the one chapter of Jude. Confusing? Um, Jude 3 tells us that Jesus is he who parted the waters and delivered the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. Have you thought about that? Have you seen that? Let's look at Jude 3, just so that, so that you always know that we're, we're based on what we're saying in the Scriptures. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was uh, once delivered for all the saints. We, that may not be verse 3. See, that's why we go back to our Bible. Here we go. Uh, for certain people have crept unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who, were, uh, to, uh, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus is the, the actor within the, every page of the Old Testament. I imagine that some of these things are things that Jesus spoke of on the road to Emmaus in, in, in Luke 24. Jesus saying, hey, remember, remember all those things? Remember those things when Jesus sent with his disciples when they take the Lord's Supper? Jesus saying, hey, you know this Passover that we've all taken? Jesus is interpreting consistently that he is the fulfillment of these things. Let's read verses 9 through 13 of John 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so what we see here is that God, not, God, that, that God creates God's creator, that God creates, and he not only creates seas and stars, but God creates people, not just like 
the creation of people, but God creates for himself a people who will worship and magnify his name um, in, in all of the earth. He creates for himself a people. The people that he created in the garden, what were their names? Somebody just shout it out. Adam and Eve, there we go. Adam and Eve. Those people, they disobeyed and they rejected their creator. The people of Israel whom God created, who, who God created for himself, they disobeyed God time and time again. And now they are looking, what, what this text says, they are now looking, what John is laying out here is that they are looking into the face of God, Jesus. They are looking into the face of God and yet again are rejecting who he is. They are rejecting him. God's people, what this text tells us is that God's true people, Christians, are those born not of blood, they are not born of the flesh, they are not of ethnicity nor of sheer willpower, but of God. That's what the text says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this has forever been the case. That was the case with Adam, with Abraham, with Israel, with Moses, with the church. That God creates a people not out of the people's willpower or the people's um, flesh or blood or, or bloodline or any of those things, but the will of God. Those who are born of faith, those who are born of God through faith in Christ both today and in ancient times are those who are the true Israel. That those who have come to faith in Christ are those who are truly God's people, those who believe in Christ. The text says that Christ came to the very people whom God had elected as his covenant people, but his covenant people rejected him. They did not believe who he was. But again, it was not those born of blood nor of will, but of, of God who gave them the right to become children of God. And so church family and those who are visiting with us, apart from faith, no one now or has ever been part of those who are truly gods. It is only by faith that you are of the people of God, and that is how it has always been from the beginning. It's not like God changed his plan on how to save people. No, it has always been through faith, whether that be a partial understanding of what God was promising, or whether that was when did Christ did come, now we know fully. And so those who are truly gods, those who are truly the people of God now and forever and always are those who come to faith in Christ. So we're going to read verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So don't, don't uh, miss or, or maybe we need to just be reminded or, or informed here that John is likely writing to a group of Christians um, in the first century after the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He is writing to a group of Christians heavily influenced by the Jewish faith, many of whom are actually Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, and so it's this, it's this group of people who are uh, most likely Christians, uh, who are very familiar with the Jewish faith and, and, um, and, and converts to Christianity. And so I, I bring this up because of John's use of the words, he dwelt among us. And so here's the thing. This is no, any, I remember like in 10th grade, I had this t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And had, it had like, and man, I thought I was something cool. What, what, what John is doing here, the reason why we must understand the, the audience's connection with 
the Jewish faith and their understanding of it is because this is not some like shallow, tacky way to describe what Jesus did. It's, 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 not, uh, it's, it's not John's attempt to be relevant or to present this Jesus is my homeboy picture. Like, yo, Jesus, like, he came in and he just like lived right next door to you. So he's one of your bros, you know? No, this is not John attempting to be relevant. This is John using concepts in language of the dwelling place of God being with the people of God. In fact, um, the word that you have there that says the word became flesh and dwelt among us is often the word that you will see in the Old Testament as tabernacled, that he tabernacled among us. Maybe your version even says that, uh, that he came and he tabernacled among us. No, he's using this word very intentionally. John is reinforcing the fact that Jesus, as he has already done, is the very presence of God now dwelling among us. My friends, Christ is not this elusive, unapproachable, distant figure. He dwells He has come and he has dwelt among his people, is what this text says. And and the great news today is that those who are born of faith and children of God, the Bible says God dwells now in us. Jesus dwelt among us so that God could dwell within us. And that is the way that he accomplished God's indwelling presence in the lives of Christians. And it is a beautiful Thing As Jesus later says in John 14, 9, what a claim that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God is not only saying that about Christ, but Christ is now saying that about himself. Though at one time God's partial presence existed in a place where only few could go, God now dwells among his people, both those both among those who would receive him and among those who would reject him in the person of Jesus Christ. What a shocking thing the incarnation is, right? The enfleshment of God. Jesus is no shadow or great value God. You ever ask your mom to get Fruit Loops and she comes home with that Sam's Choice uh, Fruitios or whatever, or like, or Shasta? Hey, if you're like, oh, I love Shasta, well, you're just, you know, you're a contrarian. Um, And so... Jesus is no shadow or great value God. He's no Shasta God. There's there's really no way to even explain him other than the way that the text does. No, Jesus is, rather than those things, Jesus is what the scriptures say, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15 and Colossians 1.18 says this about Christ, that in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of who God is dwelled in Christ. And Christ dwelled among us so that Christ could dwell within us. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. By the way, the, the incarnation is not... Christ subtracting deity, it's, at him, it's him adding humanity. Jesus coming to earth as a human was in no way Jesus subtracting from his uh, deity, his nature of deity. 
Rather, it is Jesus taking on, as Philippians says, the form of a servant. It's him adding humanity to who he already is. We're going to read Philippians 2, 5 through 8 together. And so if you would, let's stand as we read this. And would you just turn there with me to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. We'll begin in verse 2, in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, by the way, that's not Paul hoping that there's encouragement in Christ. That's, that is not a, that is not like, uh, I hope there's encouragement there. That is him speaking almost rhetorically. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Jesus emptied himself to dwell among us so that he could dwell within us. And church, that is a beautiful reality now as we respond to him in singing and song, coming to the table that we believe that Christ dwells within us. And so Christ in a very real way is with us, in us now. And so we come to the table aware of that reality. Those of you who have placed your faith in this Christ, we invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. Father, even if, uh, even if it doesn't happen right now, would you, would you help, again, the familiar, the familiar message, the familiar text, the familiar narrative become fresh to us in our minds? Would your Holy Spirit illumine your word um, and illumine our need for this Savior? Thank you for what Christ has done for us. Thank you for what you have done in sending your Son, Jesus, Uh, to be our substitute for his perfect righteousness, for his life, his death, his resurrection, and all that he has accomplished in that and in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.